Dear congregation, I'd like to consider with you the book of Obadiah. We left the book of Acts last week, and now we turn to the book of Obadiah. And you can comfort yourself, or maybe not comfort yourself, with the thought that this one's not going to take nearly as long as the previous one. We have just one chapter to consider. And actually, it was the the ladies' Bible study that kind of prompted me to take a second look at this book. Uh, since they were going through the Minor Prophets, and they spent a, uh, a morning looking at the book of Obadiah, and I thought to do the same. I remember there was a seminary in, in Dallas, Texas, and one of their advertising lines was, we study every book of the Bible. Or They would say to the students who were coming, you will study every book of the Bible here, including Obadiah, as if the Obadiah was a book that is often neglected. And no doubt they're right about that. It is often neglected. But there it is, this book of Obadiah, tucked away in the book of the Minor Prophets. And yet this too is God's word to us and is profitable for doctrine, instruction, and reproof. So we look then at this book. Now the first thing that we want to notice about this book is the audience, the recipients of this book. And by way of introduction then, we can see that right in verse 1, we are told, Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. So this is a book directed at the Edomites. And you know the Edomites, they lived in that rocky uh, territory to the east of Israel, to the east of Palestine. In fact, there may be some people here who may have visited the, uh, the, the, uh, the site of Petra, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Holy Land, but Petra is the, was the home of the Edomites at one time. It's uh, unbelievable that anybody could live there if you ever see how desolate that territory is. But at any rate, that is where the Edomites lived. Now the Edomites, of course, are the descendants of Esau. And so it's helpful as we begin to understand the book of Obadiah that we consider the relationship between Jacob and Esau. So take with me your Bible... And let's turn in the first place to Genesis 25. Because here the story begins. Here the story begins between Jacob and Esau. We're told that Isaac and Rebekah have these twins. The children struggle within the womb, but finally they are born. And as they grow up, we're told in verse 27, so Genesis 25 and verse 27, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. And then here's the key verse, verse 28. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. That is, Isaac had a taste for the kind of meat that Esau would kill and bring home and cook. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So already at the beginning of this story, we have this division between these two twins, Right, These twins here, Jacob and Esau, Isaac had fixed his love, and, and, and this is a clear instance of parental favoritism, isn't it? Isaac prefers Esau, and Rebekah prefers Jacob. So already we have this favoritism, and you might say, uh, from this verse on, the die is cast, right? The die is cast. From, from here on out, it seems that Jacob and Esau are forever at odds with each other. Now, Uh, after Jacob steals the birthright. Remember, Esau uh, buys the birthright from Jacob, the the, the right of the elderly, right, to the larger portion of the inheritance. 
uh, just for a bowl of soup. Uh, then uh, Rebecca gets word, right, that Isaac is going to give the blessing to Esau, so she sneaks Jacob in there. We're familiar with that story. And Jacob and Esau go their separate ways, and there's a good deal of animosity between them. So now if you turn in Genesis to chapter 33, chapter 33, and we preached on this some time ago, that Jacob and Esau meet up. And we know, of course, that Jacob is terrified. He's certain that Esau has a revenge on his mind because he hears that Esau is coming to him with 400 men. And so Jacob is terrified. And Jacob sends gifts to Esau. But here we read in verse 4, Genesis 33, verse 4, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So we see here something out of the... You might say it doesn't fit the normal narrative that we have of Jacob and Esau because here they come together and they are, there's a momentary reconciliation, is there, isn't there? They're happy with each other. They're pleased and, and they, they're happy to see each other. They kiss each other, right? That's a, a token of friendship and of intimacy and they weep. And, uh, but finally, they go their separate ways again. Now, uh, keep uh, turning to, with me and go, let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. When we come to the book of Deuteronomy, remember this is the, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses repeating the law of God to the Israelites after they had entered into the land. And Deuteronomy 2, so Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 4. Uh, at this point, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They're making their way towards the promised land. But in verse 4, Deuteronomy 2 and verse 4, And command the people, says God, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. Again, Seir would have been that rocky territory where today you can go see Petra. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them. For I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money, so that you may eat, and you shall also purchase water from them with money, so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Verse 8, so we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Elath and from Ezean Geber, and we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. So when the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings come to the land of Edom, God strictly tells them, you shall not fight the Edomites. The conquest of Canaan did not apply to the Edomites. And God says, I'm not even going to give you one footstep of their territory. Why? Because I have allotted that land for the Edomites. I have given them that land. That's theirs, and you are not to touch it. You are not to encroach upon it. You may buy from them, but you may not take so much as one foot of their land. Now, in Numbers chapter 20, if we go backwards here, Numbers chapter 20, and verse 14, You, uh, you can read of how, uh, the, the, how this actually turned out, right? Deuteronomy is looking back, but in Deuteronomy 20, I'm sorry, Numbers 20 and verse 14, we read from Kedish 
Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. And he relates something of their history. And in uh, verse 17, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or through vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left, until we pass through your territory. So there's Moses being obedient to what God had commanded them. But Edom responds very harshly. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, or I will come out with the sword against you. And again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway. If I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he, that is the king of Edom, said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him with a heavy force and with a strong hand. So, that is what we have come to expect from the relationship between Israel and Esau. Even though they're twins, there is a great deal of animosity between them. Nevertheless, the law of God speaks a different story. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. And verse 7, read that with me together. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 7, You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. So God's law strictly forbids hatred or animosity against the Edomites. Again, you certainly see that when Jesus said, Love your enemies, he wasn't the first one to say that, right? Jesus was simply repeating the law of the Old Testament that you are to love your enemies and those who despitefully use you and insult you, you are to love them. And certainly that applies in a great deal to the Edomites. You shall not hate or detest an Edomite, says God's law to Israel. Well, let's come then to uh, Obadiah. Because with that background, we are prepared now to understand God's word to the Edomites. And the first thing we read in the first nine verses of Obadiah is the judgments that God will bring on the Edomites. This is the second point then, God's judgment on the Edomites. So in verse 1, there is this report. There is this summons that goes forth. Thus says the Lord God. And then this summons goes out. And an envoy, a messenger, an ambassador has been sent among the nations saying, Arise! And let us go against her for battle. So here you see the Lord God summoning the nations. Why? So they can attack Edom. God is summoning the nations. He's gathering them together. God is the commander, as it were. And the nations are his armies. And they're going to gather around and go against Edom. And you can see Edom's response here in verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised, and now Edom has an attitude as well. In verse 3, Edom is very proud. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Now think about that. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. In other words, the pride of Edom has tricked them, has deceived them. Why? Because they have an inflated sense of their own safety, that they are impregnable, that nothing can defeat them. Now if you look at By the way, children, on your notes, you can see there's a picture there, right, of the country in which Edom lived. Very desolate and rocky region. Again, I I have no idea how anybody could manage to live there and survive, but they did. And Edom was very proud. 
of her rocky country. And they had fortresses. They had caves in those rocks. And they lived high up on the rocks. And they really believed themselves uh, to be impervious to attack. And nobody could defeat them. Nobody could overrun them. Because after all, their country was so strong and so secure. And that's what we have in verse 3. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? And then God says, here's the deception, right? You've been tricked. You've been lied to. It's not true. Verse 4, though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So there's the 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 uh, Edom's delusion. Edom's delusion. And then we read about the extent of the destruction that God will bring upon this nation. And notice the picture. The book of Obadiah, my friends, and actually the Old Testament prophets generally, they abound in very graphic language. They, 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 were, they were men of rhetoric. And they knew how to paint word pictures. And, of course, many of those pictures are kind of lost on us because we don't live in that society. But a a little bit of study, and you begin to understand what these pictures would have meant to the people who first heard them. And so when we read here, if thieves, in verse 5, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined, would they steal only until they had enough? Again, the, the picture here is that when a thief comes, they don't take everything in the house. Right? They, they take what they're looking for, or they take what they want, they take the valuables. But even then, they can't take all the valuables. If grape gatherers came to you, again in verse 5, would they not leave some gleanings? Again, even the grape gatherers, when they come, they, they can't take every single grape. But oh, how different it will be with Esau, verse 6. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked, and his hidden treasures, right? Even the treasures that he's hid away that the robbers couldn't find. Even those hidden treasures, God will find them. And his hidden treasures searched out. So the extent of the destruction that God will bring on Edom. It's a terrifying message. It's an awful message to hear. And we begin to ask ourselves, why? What for? What did Edom do that would bring such awful judgment down upon itself. So we come in the third place then to Edom's sin. Edom's sin. And here let's drop down to verse 10. Where it says, because of violence to your brother Jacob. So there's the reason, right? Because. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On that day that you stood aloof, On the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. What event is being referred to here, friends? What is the prophet speaking about in verse 11? When did this happen, that strangers carried off the wealth of Jacob, or the wealth of Jerusalem? Foreigners entered his gates and they cast lots for Jerusalem. By the way, casting lots for Jerusalem meant they divvied up the property. Who gets what? oh, you can have this lot over here, but I'll take this lot, right? They're casting lots for the property of Jerusalem. And guess what? Right in the middle of that was Edom. You too were as one of them. Now, one note about the translation here, my friends. In verses 12 and 13 and 14, 
you'll notice that those verbs are translated there as imperatives, as commands. Do not do this. Those verbs also could be translated, and again, you'll see this if you compare it with another translation, they could be translated as just simple declarative sentences. In other words, you gloated over your brother's day. Verse 13, you entered the gate of my people. Verse 14, you stood at the fork of the road. And now it's, it's quite clear, isn't it, what happened? That Obadiah wrote his prophecy after the destruction of Jerusalem. Because it was during the destruction of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came down and entered Jerusalem. And when they carried off all its treasures. And when the Babylonians stood in the city of Jerusalem and cast lots for who was going to get what territory. Right? And right in the middle of them was Edom. And Edom wasn't protesting. They weren't saying, this is wrong. We join our brother in trying to fight off these Babylonians. No. Let's read what their attitude was. In verse 12, and again, I'm going to translate these as as simple declarative sentences. You gloated over your brother's day. There you have it. They gloated. They were happy. They laughed. Oh, look at this. Right? The hated enemy, Israel, is being destroyed by Babylon. The day of his misfortune. And you rejoiced over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. You boasted in the day of their distress. Verse 13, you entered the gate of my people on the day of their disaster. And down at the end of verse 13, you looted their wealth in the day of their disaster. So Edom even joined in pillaging and taking the stuff that belonged at Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. There were the Edomites standing at the fork of the road. And as the Israelites fled in terror from the Babylonian armies, the Edomites cut them down and even robbed and imprisoned their survivors in the day of their distress. So my friends, here's the reason why God is going to bring down such horrible judgments on the nation of Edom. Because they touched the apple of God's eye. They touched his people. They rejoiced at the destruction of Jerusalem. Now in Ezekiel 35, you see also a reference to this. Ezekiel 35 is against, is also written against Edom. But in Ezekiel 35 and verse 10, you see, uh, remember that in Obadiah it talked about casting lots for the land of Jerusalem. Well, in verse 10 of Ezekiel 35, because you have said these two nations and these two lands will be mine and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. So in other words, you have the Edomites saying, oh, here we have these two nations, Israel in the north, the ten tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south, now, the, the Israelites in the north had long since gone off into exile. Oh, but now the two tribes in the south are gone too. Let's move in. And let's carve up the country. And you can have this and I'll take this. Then we also have a psalm that speaks about this. Psalm 137. Just a short psalm. But in Psalm 137, you have the lament or the cry of those people who were in exile. And in Psalm 137 and verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it. Right? And the word raise their children means destroy it. Like, smash it to the ground. Smash it would be a good synonym there. Raise it or smash it to its very foundation. So there you have the Edomites. When they see the Babylonians coming, 
Are they saying to themselves, we're going we're to stick up for Israel, we're going to fight for Israel? No, they're encouraging the Babylonians. They're saying, smash it down, smash it down. And in Psalm 137, you see the lament of God's people against the nation of Edom. Well, <clears throat> then we have the day of the Lord. The last point of, for understanding this book, verse 15, for the day of the Lord draws near. Now, my friends, in the, in the prophets, you will regularly read about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is just judgment day, right? Not necessarily the last final judgment that we're still looking forward to ourselves, but the judgment day when God will bring down his judgments upon all his enemies. And he will make things right again. He won't make everything right. That's reserved for the last day, the last and final day. But there will come even, you might say, many judgment days, right? Pre-judgment days, when God will bring destruction upon his enemies and when he will vindicate his people. And you can read in the rest of those verses how Israel will return to its land. They will return to their possessions. And the very last verse then says, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So the day of the Lord brings those things to makes all things right again. <clears throat> now, dear friends, as we come to consider this uh, book of Obadiah, and especially to think about ways to apply a, a prophecy that seems to say so little to us, right? Let's, let's face it, we, we read this and we think, well, Israel, Edom, Jacob, and Esau, but what about us in, in our own time? And as I thought about this verse, and these verses here, uh, one thought recurs to me most strongly. And that is the terrible thing it is to be one of God's enemies. This is my first point of application. What an awful thing it is to be one of God's enemies. And as we sit in church this morning, we, we comfort ourselves with the fact that we're not God's enemies. We're not the Judas amongst the twelve disciples. We're not the Esau with a Jacob. <clears throat> and yet when this book comes to us, my friends, it's a time for us to perhaps set that idea aside for now and to be honest with ourselves and to ask ourselves, am I an enemy of God? I'm asking you this morning not just to dismiss that thought out of hand, but to think carefully. And the reason is, my friends, is that we know that there are a good number of people on the last day who are going to stand before God thinking that they are God's friends. But God is going to say to them, I never knew you. And so I hope you can take this from the love of my heart, but really from the love of God's heart. The title of the sermon today is God's Care for His People. And God's care for us this morning, my friends, is, is something of a painful care. Do you understand that? It's a, it's a dose of medicine that perhaps we would just soon turn away from. It's a bitter medicine. But for all that, it's a medicine yet. And so I ask you to consider with me, my friends, who are God's enemies? And how God's enemies can 
can comfort themselves just like the Edomites did, that we live in this rocky fortress. I am perfectly safe. Nothing can touch me here. And yet, my friends, the all-seeing eye of God can see through those rocks, can see through those safe places that we might think we are, and can see our heart, can see the state of religion within us. Now, who are the enemies of God? Now, this morning, I want to think about these atheists, because perhaps that's a word that immediately comes to our mind when we think about the enemies of God. The enemies of God are atheists. And I have three kinds of atheists that I'd like to consider with you this morning. Now, the first one is an active atheist, sometimes called a philosophical atheist, an active atheist, right? You can think of people like Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, right? These, these men who have written these books. God is not great, wrote Christopher Hitchens. Richard Dawkins wrote a book, The God Delusion. Sam Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith. These are active atheists, right? Who are actively promoting and arguing for atheism. Now, I really doubt that there's even a single person in this audience today who is an active atheist. And so I'm not going to say much more about that than just to raise that issue. I will say this, though. If there are those here who struggle with some of those arguments, maybe you've read some of those books, I do hope you'll come and speak to me about that. It's something that I have personal experience with in my own life. I, too, struggled with those things. And so I would like to speak with you if you do struggle with those things. For all that, I I do believe that there's probably not a single person here, in fact, I say it with confidence, who is an active atheist. Passive atheism. If the first one was active atheism, the second one is a passive atheist. This is a person who does not believe in God and doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to think about it, doesn't want to consider any arguments to the contrary, don't care, don't want to care. They shrug their shoulders and they move on with their life a passive atheist. Such a way of thinking is, of course, completely childish, right? It's immature. It's an unwillingness to confront your own worldview and to think about it carefully and whether it stands up to reason and logic. But again, my friends, I seriously doubt, I can say with confidence, that no one here is a passive atheist. It's possible. Again, if you are, I'd like to speak to you about that. But I come now to this third category of atheism, my friends, and this is what we call practical atheism. Practical atheism. And my friends, I I have to say, I, I wish I could say that there were no such people in our church this morning. But based on the word of God, my friends, that we can't make that. I can't and you can't make that assessment. And so I ask you to consider this morning a practical atheist. This is the Edomite that would dwell in our midst, holed up in a rocky fortress, thinking himself, herself to be safe, and yet for all that, an enemy of God. A practical atheist. What is a practical atheist? Well, for our purposes this morning, a practical atheist, my friend, is a person who, has, who is externally religious, But as soon as the eyes of the church are off or away, they live as if there were no God. 
a practical atheist, his place is never empty in church. She, he, may attend the Bible study. They may partake of the communion. But let me ask you this, my friends. A practical atheist. Because that's, not, that's all visible stuff, right? We all can see that. But now as you, as you examine your own soul, my friends, I ask, what happens to your religion when the eyes are off you? When it's just you and the Lord? Again, sometimes I've used the term the interior religion. The religion of your own soul between you and God. So we gathered here this morning. We pray, we sing, we worship. But now let me ask you this question, my friends. And it's a very honest question. Did you pray yesterday? And I mean by that, my friends, did you pray when no one else was looking? Individually, between just you and God? Now this is an objective question that you can just answer before your own soul and before God in your own soul. Did you pray? Was there a time yesterday or the day before that you read the scriptures yourself, just yourself. And by the way, let me address also the heads of family here as well. Was there a time yesterday when you gathered your family, or the day before, or the day before that, and you read the scriptures to them, when you prayed with your children, when you took them to their bedrooms, or however, whatever your tradition might be, in the morning, in the evening, whatever it might be. Again, I'm not going to lay down some kind of exact pattern or program that you must follow. But you see, my friends, the practical atheist, as soon as he goes through the doors of his house, or she goes through the doors of his house, and the eyes are off, the religion goes away. It vanishes. And if you were a fly on the wall in that house, you would start to wonder, is this a Christian man? Is this a Christian woman? Is this a Christian household? How long would it take, my friends, if someone visited your house invisibly before they would realize, oh, these people are Christians. Rowland Hill was an evangelical preacher in England two, 200 years ago or so, and he made a statement like this. He said he would not believe a man to be a true Christian if his wife, his children, his servants, and even the dog and cat were not the better for it. He had kind of a quaint way of speaking. But my friends, there's a, there's a, there's a truth there. You see, I, I can look out at all of you tonight, and you look wonderful this morning, right? But the truth of your heart religion, my friends, and the truth of whether you're a practical atheist or not, comes to view when you walk through that door, when you get in your car, and when you're in your house. It comes to view on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, and on Thursday. And again, I, I think especially of our families, mothers. Do you take your children? Do you pray with them? Do you sing with them? Do you worship God with them? What a critical thing that is in the life of a family. Fathers who have the responsibility of, of leading in this regard. Is this a thing with you? Do you, do you have those conversations with your teenage children who so desperately need you 
in a, in a, in a world that is, that is pulling them in all directions? Are you the one that's standing next to them saying, son, daughter, let's talk about these things? Do you read a book with them? Do you read the scripture with them? And again, I, there's so many ways, and I, and I don't want to be a... Uh, I don't want to be a Pharisee today and lay out some exact program that you have to follow, but in whatever way you might do it, my friends, when the eyes of the church are off, are you, is your religion still there? Is it still standing strong? Which one of these rocks might you be holed up in? Thinking yourself to be safe, and yet really a practical atheist. Well, my friends, I come to the second point because I have the happy privilege today as a preacher of the gospel of pointing you to another rock because I suspect there's people here to whom I'm speaking today that say, you know, that's, that's me. Pastor, I think I might be a practical atheist. And the conclusion, I might be an enemy of God. Now you have several ways you can respond to that, right? You can get angry at the preacher. You can, you can resent the fact that I'm trying to bring this really close to you this morning. It's not me, it's, it's the scripture. Or, my friends, you can turn to another rock. You can turn to the rock that we read about in Romans 9, verse 33, where Paul says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. My friends, I ask you that if this morning you have to confess that you fall short in these things. And that's the preacher this morning. That's the elders. That's the deacons of this church. My friends, if you feel convicted this morning, if you say, you know, I can't remember the last time I got on my knees before God and prayed in secret prayer to God. I have not been that spiritual leader in my family that I should have been. I've not been a mother to my children leading them to Christ, teaching them to pray, putting the songs of Zion in their mouth. My friends, I call you to come to this rock. Because this rock, well, when you put your trust, when you plant your feet on this rock, you will never be put to shame. And what does that mean, my friends? That means that past sins can be forgotten. Past sins can be forgotten. And God can give you the Holy Spirit to ensure future obedience. Does that sound familiar to you? That's the gospel, isn't it? That's the new covenant. My friends, I don't want you to sit and wallow in guilt and shame this morning. I want you to take that guilt. I want you to take that shame. And we're all on the same boat this morning. And I want you to roll that guilt upon this rock. I want you to leave that guilt at the foot of the cross. I want you to bring that guilt and lay it on Jesus. And to know that if you do that this morning, you shall never be ashamed. You know how I may put that this morning? That there's a rock here, my friends, even for Edomites. 
Maybe you can't even place yourself amongst the people of God this morning. You have so much shame when you look back at all the things that you've let slip and fall to the ground. Well, my friends, this rock is for Edomites. Maybe you can't even put yourself with the people of God, but I ask you this today, can you put yourself amongst the Edomites, the enemies of God? Well, then here's a rock for you. In this rock, my friends, if you build on this rock, not the rocks of the Edomites and their holes and their fortresses and their caves, but this rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you never will be ashamed. And my friends, I bring myself into the third point. Discipline. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. Remember, this letter, Obadiah, this book of Obadiah was written to the Edomites. But what is the status of the Israelites in his time? They've been, they've been chased out of their city. Their temple's been burned to the ground. Their property's been carved up and distributed to others. Whom I love, that's the verse I put there. Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Know, my friends, that even when we are God's children, God will discipline us. Even when we have the privilege of being an adopted member of God's family, that does not exempt us from discipline. And if we're under discipline this morning, then I bring you to verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you want to overcome? Do you want to be a victory, my friends, over a a haphazard, careless, sloppy life of faith? Then God says you can overcome. And the first thing is to get on that rock, to have your sins forgiven, to know and to have the assurance that I'm in God's family, I'm one of his children. And then, my friends, you can go to work. That first, get on the rock first, but now we can overcome. Now we can do, I meant to put that verse from Matthew 7 there under the third point, where it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. We get on the rock, and now we can build our house. Now we can listen to the words that Jesus gives us. My friends, that means some of you need to make changes. Some of you need to make changes, and at the beginning of the year, what a better time can there be? to start afresh, to start new. Be zealous and repent. Don't just sit down in your your guilt. Don't just sit down there and wallow in shame. That's the devil who tries to get you to do that. But let your guilt lead you to the rock and to rebuild, to make a new start, a new day. And with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit filling your sails, go forward in the work of the Lord. Tonight, my friends, Sit down, fathers, gather your children, teenagers or younger ones or whoever they may be. Open the scriptures. Get out your phone. Get the Trinity Psalter hymnal app. It's right there. Hit the play button and sing a song together. What a wonderful blessing that would be. Sing a song together and send your children to their beds full of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mothers, Monday, Tuesday, gather your little ones. Make it a day a new day, a new start. If, if it's slipped, and I know how that is, right? In family life, things constantly slip away. We constantly need to be brought back to the disciplines of the Christian life. Young people, young men, young women, don't go to bed 
without committing your life into the hands of God. The last thing you do, and again, I I hate to give specifics like this because it sounds like I'm being legalistic, but this is such a a time-honored practice, right, that don't begin a day and don't end a day without prayer. Resolve never to let it happen. And if it does happen, repent, get back up, and make it happen again. Don't just give up on it. Young men, well, let me just ask you very specifically, what passage of Scripture did you read yesterday? What passage of Scripture did you, did you read yesterday in your, in your own personal devotions life? And if you have to say, I didn't read one, make a fresh start. This is the time to say, okay, I'm growing older. I can't always lean on my mom and dad to remind me to do these things. I'm going to, of my own initiative, leaning on the strength of the Spirit of God, take the Word of God, start in the Gospel of John, start in the, in the book of Genesis, right? Start in one of the Gospels and start reading a chapter a day. And if you don't have much time, read just a couple of verses. If you have more time, you can read more. And then bow your knees. Pray. Ask God to bless what you've read. And in the strength of that, go forward into 2024. And so, my friends, I want to to close the sermon by emphasizing once again, everything I said today about making changes is foolish, futile, and empty unless both your feet are planted on that rock. If you miss that, you miss everything this morning. Come to Christ as a lost sinner. Confess your faith in him. Plant your feet upon that rock. Now, now you're in a position to go out. Lead your family. Lead yourself. Be an elder. Be a deacon. Serve the Lord with gladness. May God grant it, my friends, for his name's sake. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this morning as a broken lot of terrible sinners. Lord, we confess it, that in so many ways our lives reflect more the character of an Edomite than of an Israelite. More the character of an enemy of God than of a friend. And yet the title of the sermon this morning, Lord, was your care for your people. And Lord, as we swallow this bitter dose of medicine this morning, I pray that it would work its way through our system, that it would make us to be vigorous and zealous, to put into practice the things that keep us close to you. Lord, I pray that there would be a spirit of secret prayer amongst your people And that where it has fallen aside, that where it has fallen down, that you would stir it up. Lord, I pray for mothers and their role with their children at home. And all the work that they have to do. Whatever work they may do. Lord, I pray for fathers and the work that they have to do. And all the weariness that they have. All the tiredness. How mentally exhausted and drained they can be when they step through that door after a day's work. But Lord, I pray that there would be a new strength in them this day. A strength that's not their own, a strength from the Holy Spirit of God so that they can take their sons, their daughters, their little ones and speak to them about the things of Christ. Lord, I pray for the young people amongst us, the young boys, the young men, the young girls, the young ladies. Lord, that at the beginning of their life, as they are just beginning now to think about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be baptized into the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that they too would develop habits of prayer, of Bible study, and of, and of communion with the saints, speaking with the men and women of God who are around them, that they too, O oh God, would walk in your ways and keep your commandments. Lord, if there's one here today who is so completely devastated, thinking that perhaps they really may be an enemy and not a friend, deluding themselves, Lord, I pray that the devil would not get a hold of this man, this woman's soul, but that they would flee, that they would fly with all speed to the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that whoever believes in him shall never be ashamed. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in the hearts of each one, that we could look back, O oh Lord, on 2024 as a year in which you worked in our life in a powerful way and moved us and changed us so that we could live lives that bring more honor and glory to your name. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal and let's sing about that rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let's sing it with faith and with joy in our hearts. The, three, the four verses of 388 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.